Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. The Grateful Dead hold a place in history and in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They help spawn jam bands and social networking. They are quite simply one of the most famous and influential bands in the history of rock. Just in time for the 50th anniversary of a band that changed rock and roll musically and culturally comes David Brown's new book, So Many Roads, The Life and Times of the Grateful Dead. Anyone who doubts the band's impact and importance need only check the advanced sales for their reunion concerts, which just took place in California and in Chicago at Soldier Field. The four surviving original members, Mickey Hart, Bill Kreutzmann, Phil Lesh, and Bob Weir, have just played their final ever performances together. Ticket sales records have been broken, and then some. This is, for many, the most highly anticipated concert event of the year. So many roads from David Brown takes us deep into the world of the dead in ways that will be eye-opening even to the most rabid deadheads. By way of an altogether unique and striking structure, each chapter centered around a significant or pivotal day in their story. Brown, a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, who has written extensively on the band for that magazine, lends this epic musical and cultural story a you-are-there feel, unlike any other book written on The Grateful Dead. I began my recent interview with David Brown by asking him why he chose The Grateful Dead for his latest book project. You know, I started thinking about this book about four years ago, uh, right after I'd finished my last book called Fire and Rain, which was about uh, the year 1970 and some of the big artists of that year and, and the country in that year. And it was a it was a really fun project for me cause, because I got to write about a lot of the first records uh, and bands I ever got into when I was a kid, like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Simon & Garfunkel, and so forth. And when I was done with that, I thought, boy, maybe I should... I had such a good time writing that book. I thought it'd be kind of fun to stay in the zone somehow. Uh, and I thought, well, what what would that be? <laughs> you know? Uh, and then it kind of flashed on me, well, another one of the very first bands I got into during that time in the early, mid-'70s was The Dead. And then it sort of flashed on me, oh, you know, four years from now, we'll be their 50th anniversary, and, and to tackle something like this, I would need that amount of time. Uh, so I did, uh, you know, I did sort of plan it to come out this year four years ago. Of course, four years ago, there was not the, uh, there was no talk of any of the reunion concerts and box sets and all this other stuff we're seeing uh, rolling out to celebrate it. But... Um, that was kind of the genesis of it, more or less. You know, I I I, I love the music and that era, or that that you know, I mean, they they span many eras, but mm-hmm. that, that was my initial connection to it. Um, and then, of course, the second challenge was, uh, well, God, what what can I bring that's new to this picture? And uh, so much has been written about them. And I thought, you know, I'm a big fan of micro histories. Uh-huh. Um, whether you know, I mean, my last book, Fire and Rain, was like that. It was just about one year, but I, I loved like you know, um, 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 movies and books that are just about one particular little era, uh, a moment in time, and, and they dig deep into that. You know, a movie like Selma is like that. There was a terrific book about um, Bobby Kennedy's 1968 campaign called The Last Campaign that I loved, and uh, I thought, well, maybe I could do that with the dead, you know, I, and 
I make each chapter a little micro-history of one sliver of time. And that, that hadn't been done before, and I thought that would lend it a kind of almost novelistic narrative feel that um, other books on, on the dead haven't uh, tackled. So... Um, so with that, I got rolling. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is, I, I just love it. And it's its just this truly unusual approach to, to the book to just see, uh, you know, these 15 chapters and then a prologue and, a, and an epilogue, all with, you know, a, a date and a location. And obviously, you're not just writing in those chapters about that exact date and that exact right. moment. But um, I just i just love using that, the, these chronological pivot points in the book. It, it does, it just takes you, you know, from, you know, to that particular place, that particular time, it's, it's it draws you in. I think it's just a brilliant move on your part, you know, structuring oh, this you. book that way. It's oh, just, thank you so much. It's so great. Take, take us back to these uh, early days of the Grateful Dead when they weren't known as the Grateful Dead and weren't known as the uh, Warlocks and were, were right. playing at a pizza pizza house of all places. Uh, pizza house, yeah. You know, um, I, I the, the, when they played at that pizza parlor, which was just about 50 years ago, May of 65. Uh, that was one of the first dates I flashed on. You know, I, the, my approach to the, once I decided to do a sort of uh, um, micro-history approach, I, I, made, I came up with a, a huge timeline. You know, I went through all sorts of other books and articles and put together, just pulled out all kinds of significant dates, and then I started kind of whittling it down. I took the whole approach very seriously. Uh, because I wanted uh, I wanted to respect the band and and Deadheads and and be accurate in all of that, and certainly one of the ones that jumped out was uh, the the shows that they played in May of '65 at a pizza parlor. Yes, when they were just they were the Warlocks. They weren't the Grateful Dead yet. Um, and one night in particular, which turned out to be the very last night they played at Magoo's uh, Pizza Parlor uh, in the Palo Alto um, area, and uh, that was the night that uh, basically Phil Lesh was asked to join the band. He he was not an original member. Uh, he knew the guys, but uh, but at that point he was just a, he was a classical music guy. And so the night that he went to see them, I thought it would be such a great kind of. Um, uh, scenario to to uh, portray to you know imagine the dead playing you know on this in this little piece of parlor in this business district in town um, you know no stage you know uh, their friends just kind of hanging out uh, very loud to the point the police came you know because <laughs> you're not used to loud rock and roll bands in 1965 playing you know in the middle of uh, this little you know business district shopping area and uh, I thought that kind of captured something about their early days and how they sounded back then they were not doing the music we knew them uh, knew that they came to know now and I was able to you know uh, interview people who were there and, and kind of recreate that scene I thought that there was such a pivotal moment because uh, because of Phil Lush joining I mean he really he brought such a, a signature approach to playing bass and a sensibility to the band that complemented Garcia's and so I thought that was that was a really important day to kind of sketch out and and like you said I gave a little I give a little backstory to what happened leading up to that and and uh, that was a really fun one to write about I bet but boy this this uh, quote from uh, Jerry Garcia uh, what back in I think 1966 where he says to uh, Yorma Kaukinen of Jefferson Air Plane. We're, right. we're going to be archetypes. 66 right. <laughs> before the Grateful Dead even recorded their first 
album. Talk I, about prescience. Wow. It, it, it really was. Uh, Yorma, when I interviewed Yorma, he told me that story. Even he chuckled about it in retrospect. But I think that's a, it's a great uh, quote for you to, to point out because I think one of the things I learned in the process of this book is that the dead, you know, for all of their sort of you know, chaos that dogged them, whether it was in their personal lives or their business and even in sometimes their interpersonal relationships, they could be very, very focused when they wanted to be, and Jerry in particular. And, uh, you know, this whole image of all these stoned hippies, you know, noodling around, well, that's not the whole story with that band. Uh, and, and with Jerry, Jerry saying something like that at that point in time, uh, 1966, when, you know, um, even, you know, hearing uh, when a few months after that, they all moved into a communal house in Haight-Ashbury and Mountain Girl, who was Jerry's girlfriend at the time, telling me that, you know, Jerry was always the first one up in the house, you know, at dawn, you know, any, you know, light a cigarette or, or something similar, perhaps, and then just start practicing scales, you know, like just sit there and just really concentrate, like he wanted to be a great guitar player. Uh, musicians not always known, as you probably know, for getting up at dawn. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not usually part of the regimen. Um, but, uh, you know, things like that and that comment to you, I really showed how, you know, Jerry, Jerry knew what he wanted. I mean, he was, he was, he was intensely focused on music and, the, and where he wanted to go with it and, 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 and to some extent what kind of success he wanted to have with it. Uh, it wasn't all haphazard. Um, and uh, I, I think that's, that was that kept being reinforced to me over and over again. You know, when I would go to the, I had access to their archives, which are at the um, University of California Santa Cruz uh, campus, and you know, coming across for one of uh, one of many documents that I came across were handwritten notes from their manager to, from a business meeting with the band in the early '70s, and you know, you see it all handwritten, you know, written out like all their complaints to the, about their record company at the time. You know, like, they're not marketing us correctly. They need to do this and that. And I'm looking at this and going, oh, my God, you know, Jesus. You know, like, even as early as 1971, 72, they were, you know, they had a certain business acumen to them. Hmm. Which, you know, the, many, de- defying the stereotype, many of us think about the Grateful Dead, which is, oh, they're just tripping their brains out and getting high on one thing or another. Now they, right, they had right. There, there, and there was that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but there was another side to them. There were many other sides to them. Certainly they, 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 they were aware of the business aspect of it, and, and, you know, not that they were focused on that, but they, they, they knew the importance of that. Um, and, you know, there was, there was a certain... Um, you know, badass uh, aspect to the to the band and to the organization, to their crew, uh, that also counters that that I think that stereotype of of them just all you know stoned hanging out in the field together. You know, they really <laughs> uh, it was it was a it was a tough uh, you know survival of the fittest organization. True, and some people uh, didn't survive, uh, starting with some of the band members. Uh, right. And uh, boy, the Jerry Garcia, I, I, I really had no idea. I guess ma- many of us didn't. Um, just, just uh, this man was really uh, in, in a lot of real deep trouble in terms of a heroin addiction for uh, many, many years. And you, you write uh, quite poignantly, and it seems like no one, people tried, but... Uh, couldn't get this man uh, really on the right path for quite a while. 
they, they couldn't. I mean, there was uh, this this dictum in the band, which I heard from several people, were basically, as long as the music didn't wasn't affected, you could basically do what you want. There was a kind of laissez-faire. No one would tell anyone in the band, well, don't do this drug or that, or don't don't live your life this way or that way. It was, you know, laissez-faire until it until it impacted where it counted, which was the music. And, and you know, it did finally, you know, in the mid-'80s, early to mid-'80s, did start to impact that. And they did, there, there were attempts at interventions and so forth, but, you know, they never really stuck. And it was, you know, it was it was interesting to to talk to people about, um, in the band and people who worked with them and so forth, knew them about Jerry's death, which was almost 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, and how there's still a certain uh, there's still a, 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 a there's still a certain amount of um, hair tugging, exasperation, and so forth about what what they could or should have done. Should they have ground the whole operation to a stop for a while? Well, we could have, but he would have gone out on tour with another his own solo band. Should we have done this? Should we have done that? There's still a lot of second guessing. Um, uh, uh, you know about about where he was heading and and an exasperation even to the point you know and I mean Mickey Hart told me you know uh, you know hey we would try to tell him this and one day I brought a Hell's Angel around to his house and said if you don't stop you know we're gonna, you you know the Hell's Angel's going to beat the crap out of you uh, but Jerry would just laugh and keep eating his you know his hamburger and his eating his milkshake because I mean it was, his diet was not good <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it wasn't just drugs I mean he was he had heart issues and a and a really bad diet and that's that, that's not going to help either. Who were some of the most, uh, the, the, the people you interviewed? You interviewed a ton of people and interviewed people who haven't gone on the record before about the right. Grateful Dead, David. Was was there one or two people in particular who just had particularly revelatory things to, to say about the band that had you go, that had you going, oh my God, I didn't know that. People need to know this uh, about yeah. this group. Right. Um, there were... Uh some members of the crew, a uh, guy named Kid Candelario, who hasn't talked much, and, and you know, he would explain some of the, 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 the dynamics of the members that were really interesting. I had three really great long interviews with Bruce Hornsby, talking about his you know, stint with the band in the early 90s and, and hearing about his, um, his take on, on them and about Jerry's problems and how, how things deteriorated even within that short period of time, you know, 90 to 92. You know, uh, another person who had never, uh, there was someone who, uh, a woman who worked uh, at Bob Weir's house, you know, in the mid-70s who had never talked before, and, and, and she gave really great insight into into him and his, you know, uh, what was going on in his house and in that home studio that they had where they recorded Blues for Allah, which was a very pivotal kind of moment for them, too. I think they were coming off of a hiatus and yet still trying to work together. Uh, you know, even hearing you know, one of her jobs was to make sure his jeans were pressed, you know, <laughs> exact perfectly. You know, like uh, the creases were done perfectly, or you know, one of her jobs was to collect all the roach clips at the end of the sessions and <laughs> things like that. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff like that. So, um, you know, I was fortunate to have some pretty good access and, and get to some people who hadn't uh, talked for who, and it, I think just helped fill out the story a little bit more than than perhaps in the past. Tell me what is the, the, the magic of this band that, that captured, that has captured listeners. We're talking about a group in their entire career have had only one top 50 single 
uh, Touch of Grey, one album to hit the top ten in uh-huh. Billboard from that the album that that single's taken from, In the Dark. And yet, I'm just looking at StubHub as we speak, and for the, the final show at uh, Soldier Field, uh, you can get a ticket, for, you know, highest price, $11,000, even though <laughs> it's on pay-per-view, you can watch it from... Right. Why... Why does has this band of all bands attracted such a fanatical following for so many years? Yeah, I think part of it is from early on they fostered this connection with their fans in a way that no one was doing in the in the sixties and seventies, and not as many people have done it. Not many people have done it since. Um, I mean, I, I was constantly being reminded of that during my research. You know, I came across uh, a copy of a letter that Jerry sent to some guy he didn't even know in early '67, and uh, a, a friend of a friend of that guy's had a copy. And this is a guy who just wrote them a letter. They didn't have a record out even, and just said, "Oh, I saw you. You guys were great." And Jerry wrote, wrote back to this guy a long, a long letter explaining the history of the band and how he wasn't satisfied with that show he saw, and. Starting with that, up into up through the newsletters they sent out to fans in the early seventies, uh, where you would get you know you'd get this thing in your mailbox at home with a with a uh, news from the band and what they were doing and here's here's who we're playing and here's who we're going to be starting our own record company um, and, and then even starting their own ticket service in the early eighties they they worked really really hard at having um, as direct a connection as you possibly can with your fans while still being a big rock band. You know, they really fostered social media in a way. They really paved the way for that, um, of going around the record companies and the businesses and trying to um, have that bond. And I think, so I th- I think that's part of it. I think there's a, uh, you know, I, I think the music you always have to come back to, you sure. know, uh, this month, um, Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter, his regular and longtime lyricist are being inducted into the songwriters hall of fame, which is this prestigious institution in New York that, that has spots for everybody from, you know, Stephen Foster and the Gershwins through Dylan and London McCartney and so forth. Those two guys wrote a body of songs that are being, you know, we recorded and covered, to this day, you know, there's even a new tribute album in the works by, you know, indie rock bands, you know, Vampire Weekend and mm-hmm. members of The National and people who you wouldn't necessarily expect to be into The Grateful Dead. But but it's a sign of how enduring those songs are from, you know, not, not just, of course, Touch of Grey, but, you know, Boxer Rain, Casey Jones, you know, I mean, you know, uh, Ramble on Rose, Jack Straw, I mean, and, and a slew of songs which which are which have endured because um, Hunter and Garcia were rooted in folk music and country and, 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 and classic American song structures and lyrics. And, uh, and those songs have, have, have endured, you know, which you can't always say for a lot of other jam bands. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's, so there's the connection with the fan base. You know, there's the music that endures. There's the aura of the band. There's just something about them that still, I think, attracts people in the sense that they they now, I think, in retrospect, seem very original and authentic. 
You know, they never had songs in TV commercials or video games. Um, the fact that they only had one hit, like you mentioned, and yet could stay, play stadiums, uh, this this stuff is sort of unimaginable <laughs> nowadays, you know? It's true. When, when it's bands true. are hap- more than happy to have their songs licensed in toilet paper commercials because nobody's making any money in the music business. So right. you, do what you, you do what you can. And, 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 you know, young bands look at them now and say, oh, my God, they, they barely sold any records, really. Uh, and yet they were, pl- by, by the 80s, they were they were filling stadiums like one after another after another with this loyal fan base. That's you know that's a dream scenario <laughs> for, for most uh, younger musicians, and I think for for younger music fans, it seems uh, sort of mystical in a way. I think that's true. That's so true, David. One one final question: uh, You're yeah. being exiled to that uh, fabled desert island, and you can only take one Grateful Dead album. Oh. Wow. With you and this band, oh my God, the catalog is uh, insane. Wow. What what would that one album be and why? Oh, that's a good question. Um, boy, you know, I suppose, boy, it's, it's a, that's a tough one to take. Someone to guess. Um, I would probably take. Here, I'll, I'll cheat. I'll say Europe 72 because there's a three record set. That's fine. <laughs> you get That's a cool. lot of music and you get everything on there. You get all these new songs that they were playing live during that period, the Brown Eyed Women and, and, uh, and Jack Straw and so forth. And you get a lot of their classic songs with a lot of jams, uh, with a lot of extended playing. So, the, I mean, that record captures all different aspects of them, the songwriting, the jamming, the, the live performance aspect. Um, that might be the one I would take. This has been Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with author David Brown about his new book, So Many Roads, The Life and Times of the Grateful Dead. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.